Hi, I'm Dr. Kyla, paediatric dietitian, fussy eating specialist, and mum of two. I'm the founder of the online Mealtimes memberships that help parents just like you experience a confident and guilt-free way of feeding children. I'm also a business owner, a hot cross bun lover, and my superpower is finding things that you cannot live without. In this podcast, I'm talking about feeding your family, along with a random selection of topics that tickle my fancy. Welcome to Mealtimes with Dr. Kyla. Hello and welcome to Mealtimes with Dr. Kyla. Today's guest is Claire Gaspar, accredited practicing dietitian and credentialed eating disorder clinician and mum of two. Claire is the founder of Diet Free Me, where she works as a non-diet dietitian to help people heal their relationship with food and their body. Claire has such a lovely, grounded approach to everything she does, and I am personally constantly learning from her. She really helps her clients to change their whole lives, free from food guilt and body shame. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's it's lovely to be a guest on your podcast. Oh, I was super excited when you said yes to chatting because I feel like you have such an interesting insight into some of the challenges that I think a lot of people in our generation are facing and I'm interested to kind of hear more about the types of things that you do and who you see and so maybe if you just want to tell me a little bit about the work you do first before we dive any deeper. Yeah sure sure so I I work in private practice um so I I have my my practice in Borodoo um and we see children adolescents and adults um who present with different eating disorders or um, disordered eating, people that have a long history of dieting, trying to lose weight, gaining it back, losing weight, gaining it back, um, and and anyone really who wants to feel happier, feel healthier, um, and they're they're done with the the diet way of of doing things. Um, real yo-yo isn't it like that real um, kind of constantly thinking about it up down focusing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it takes up so much space in your brain that that's one of the the reasons that people often give for wanting to do this recovery work is they just want to spend less time thinking about food they've got other priorities in their life and the time that they're thinking about their calories or feeling guilty about eating some chocolate or thinking about their, their weight or their shape or any of those things it's time spent away from something that probably aligns better with their values and, and with their life very interesting and I wonder if for a lot of us we almost don't notice it because it has been a constant for lots of people do you think that's a fair reflection that is, yeah, definitely a fair, a fair point. Dieting has become normalised in our society, but it's not normal, if that, if that makes sense. It's, yeah. it's um, another way I guess I could think of it is it's, it's so deeply ingrained that um, if you are not dieting, if you're not trying to lose weight or get into a smaller size, it almost feels like you're the odd one out. Like everyone else is doing this. Should I be doing this? Am I the wrong person for, for not trying to be following some sort of different way of eating? And, you know, it's a it's a talk for another time, but 
if we think about this in terms of like our socializing, talking about diets and, and weight loss is one of the, the kind of socially acceptable discussion themes for groups of women to talk about. So um, part of going through this recovery process for some people does mean reevaluating some of the friendships that they've had or some of the social settings that they, they put themselves in that maybe they don't align with anymore. That that is a whole interesting um, yeah. for another day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's just kind of raising in my head this idea or like one of the, I guess, the challenges is that there's a real perception or maybe previously there has been that you have to, like there's a real morality associated with it, right? Like you're yeah. being good, you're watching what you eat, you're uh-huh. caring for your body, but that that isn't necessarily what you're actually doing, is it? It's Definitely, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, of moral value attached to um, not just foods but also to your way of eating. So um, we could think about moral value um, different to, say, nutritional value. So someone might describe a food as like, oh, that's a good food. Are they meaning good because it's highly nutritious? Are they meaning good because it tastes really yummy? Or do they mean good in a moral sense because that is a food that kind of diet culture labels as acceptable, as, as okay, as healthy to eat? And for many people, um, that that expression, you are what you eat, actually mm-hmm. holds up that if they eat bad foods, they start to think of themselves as a bad person. So we have to think about shifting the language when it comes to how we talk about foods because we don't want people to, to think less of themselves and judge themselves negatively um, based on the types of foods they eat or their, their eating pattern. Yeah, so interesting. It must bring up a whole heap of kind of big things to wade through for clients when you're first meeting them. Would that be fair? Mm, I, I use the visualisation of it being like a, a box, a box that has been sitting in your shed or your spare room and over the years you've just kind of dumped stuff in there and it's to the point where you don't even really know everything that's in the box anymore and you've carried it from house to house and and so partly what we need to do when starting therapy and starting this recovery process is actually just taking the lid off the box and going what is in there you know, rummaging around and almost like cataloging and going, okay, so we can work on this stuff to do with, you know, your relationship with with chocolate. We can talk about um, your experience with um, growing up in a bigger body as a child. We can talk about this, we can talk about that. So just getting the, the lay of the land, I suppose, to find out, what is there, you know, what, how much work potentially could we do? But at the end of the day, it does come down to what feels most important for my client. Yeah. My, my job isn't to tell people what they should be doing different or to try and motivate them to change in the direction that I think they should. I am here to support my clients in the way that they need me. 
Um, but if they don't yet know the support they need or even know the support that is available to them, then I, I would definitely sort of facilitate that, that discovery process at the start. So interesting, isn't it? Because when I do think about that box of um, memories that perhaps is in the spare room currently, I think there's two clear boxes in mine, and I'm talking literally at this point, decluttering <laughs> some of those things actually does feel amazing, doesn't it? Like letting mm. some of those things go, getting rid of them, seeing what's still mm. valuable to you and what isn't. I can imagine there is a real sense of relief and freedom for people who are working with you when they can yeah. put some of those things down. Freedom is is a really beautiful word. Um, another word that I would use would be liberation. Um, you know, if if diet culture is is like that merry-go-round that we're kind of trapped on, it's like finally being able to step off and walk away. And when you first start walking, if you've been on this merry-go-round, you might feel a little dizzy. You might feel like the ground is moving, and and actually you might feel better in the short term if you jump back onto the merry-go-round but you have to trust in yourself that you can get to a better place keep walking and then you know you you can actually go forward with that that growth process um, there are so many different emotions that can come up for people doing this sort of recovery work um, grief is is a strong one too um, grief for perhaps the, the younger self. Um, I have lost count of the number of times that I've had lovely clients say something like, I wish I could go back, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago to when I was 17, 18, and, and I thought I was fat. And I wasn't, I wish I could tell that that girl, like, that you're beautiful and you're, you're fine just the way you are. You don't have to change your body. Um, so there's a lot of, there can be a lot of, grief for the, the years, the decades spent struggling with body image and eating, um, yeah, but it's never too late. My oldest client that I've ever had was a lovely lady in her mid-70s um, and she had this long history of, of dieting and, and feeling dissatisfied with her body, um, stretching all the way back from her childhood and she just reached a point where enough was enough. And she put in a good solid six months of work, I think. And the, the progress for her was just life-changing. It literally was life-changing. That's incredible. And how crazy to think that she spent so much of her life. Like if you were to add up the hours of kind of the thought and the hate and the loathing and the, all of those things, like that mm -hmm. is not insubstantial, is it? No, and and we the, in um in the, the psychology world, there's a, a thought experiment that can sometimes be useful for clients to do, where they picture themselves at their 80th birthday, and their their close friends and and their family are there, and someone is giving a speech, and you get the client to picture you know what would you like that person to say about you at your 80th birthday in their speech? Do you want them to say, oh, well, you know, Claire was so dedicated to losing weight. She kept up, she committed to that for decades. You know, do you want them to say, Claire was so disciplined, 
She she never had any cake on her birthday or Christmas time. Well, no. she was so preoccupied. <laughs> yeah, you, you want yeah. to see stuff about who you are as a person um, and, you know, some other things that you've achieved and done in your life. So when we get people to kind of picture the life that they want for themselves, they pretty quickly see that dieting and being trapped on that, that dieting merry-go-round isn't actually compatible with their values. It doesn't fit into the life they want for themselves. Oh, so interesting. And I feel like it flows onto multiple kind of different pathways to chat about, but I'll, I'll hold myself back and perhaps we can chat in the <laughs> about some of the other um, options. I'm interested to kind of hear a little bit about how you got to this point and maybe we can start mm-hmm. kind of right back at the start and kind mm-hmm. of the entree section that I ask a lot of my guests is around your experience of food and meal times as a kid. What was that like for you growing up? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, unsurprising to many people who've come across me, I'm the oldest child um, and probably show quite uh, stereotypical traits of being the eldest. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, and... I, I lived with them and I lived with my mom and dad and our, our eating was probably fairly typical of, of um, you know, many kind of kids growing up in, in Australia in the, the 90s, early 2000s. I, I was in a family where my dad went to work full time um, and my mum chose not to return to work after she had us kids so we had a mum who was um, at home and and very involved in the school you know PNC president and um, doing or organizing in sports and things like that so there there are some key features of my childhood that other kids uh, might not have had so we always went to school with homemade food Um, and, and I'll preface this by saying I'm not passing any any judgment on how parents feed their kids or how my mum fed us. Not saying that one way is better than the other, just describing my experience with this. Um, so we would always yeah, go to school with um, a, you know, a homemade muffin or homemade piece of cake or something like that. And my sister, which we only found out when she was an adult, she used to long for the packaged snacks, like the roll-ups and the little packets of shapes and things that, that we didn't have in our lunchboxes. Um, and she actually would trade her, her lovely homemade chocolate slice, you know, for a, a packaged snack. Um, and my mum was outraged when she found that out. But she like, I wasn't baking for other children. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it meant that we would come home to, um, you know, afternoon tea was, was always like some some fruit or uh, something that mum had, had made or baked. And I very, very clearly have developed my love of baking, my interest in, in preparing food and cooking from my mum. You know, I have very fond memories of baking with her and learning how to use the, the mixes and, and do the measuring and she's very patient with that probably far more patient than I am with my two kids when they're baking um, okay. <laughs> um, and we were a typical kind of meat and veg 
type family, meat and veg with potato or maybe spaghetti bolognese. As we got older, we had some more adventurous, <laughs> you could call them dishes, um, but there was still the pretty standard kind of Aussie versions of tacos and spaghetti bolognese and sausages and just usual kind of family meals, I suppose. Um, we, we did have quite a few rules, I guess, around eating that, that weren't communicated as a rule, but it was something that was, um, that was understood, you know, in, yeah. implicitly applied or sometimes explicitly applied. So examples of this were in the school holidays, mum would buy for us one box of um, what she would sort of consider like a treat cereal. Uh -huh. So Cocoa Pops or Fruit Loops or, you know, something like that. Um, whereas normally it would be Wheat Bix or like All Bran or something in, in the house. Um, so we got one box of treat cereal and we would get one jar of uh, Nutella or for a while there um, they released the Milky Way spread. Um, yeah, which I remember delicious oh my god I just oh delicious um so we get one jar of Nutella one box of cereal for the school holidays and, and is this between three people so this is this, to share. Yeah, so this is between the three of our siblings and my mother's expression was when it's gone it's gone as in you're mm -hmm. getting one box one tub of Nutella that's it so what that what that meant, and I and as a parent, I completely understand that this is mum's way of saying, you know, don't nag me. <laughs> I'm not gonna, yeah. gonna buy anymore. When it's gone, it's gone. Um, those weren't foods that she routinely bought for us. Um, she didn't um, consider them as foods that that were okay to eat regularly, more regularly than school holidays. Yeah. Um, but what it meant was that it created this sense of scarcity. And I talk with my clients a lot about something called scarcity mindset, which is the, the rarer something is or the more restricted our access to something is, the more we actually want to eat that food and the more we want to eat when we do actually eat the food. So this is particularly important in the context of someone who feels addicted to food or who experiences binge eating. Often one of the drivers for that overconsumption is actually that the access to that food is in some way restricted. Um, so for my brothers and my brother and sister and I, it meant that if one of them was having a Nutella sandwich for morning snack, the other two felt like they also had to have Nutella sandwiches because we wanted to get our fair share. We didn't want to miss out. Um, and, it, and it meant that we would have big globs of Nutella on our sandwiches. Like it would make, it would make me feel quite yucky now to eat that much in one sitting. But again, it was that scarcity mindset of that, wow, we don't normally get Nutella, now we do. John and Grace are having it for their sandwiches, so I better have it too, otherwise I'm going to miss out. Um, and Nutella is, is one of the foods that, as an adult, for a long time, I wouldn't keep in the house. 
I, I was that classic person, just like many of my clients are, that would go, oh, well, you know, it's, it's if I don't have it in the house, then I won't eat it. And then if I did kind of, um, you can't say this, but I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> if I did cave. <laughs> Always <laughs> translates well on a podcast. Yep. Yeah, it really does. Um, if I caved and bought Nutella, like the jar would be gone within a week, if that. So Nutella was one of those foods that I had to go through the process of legalising in order for it to now be a staple food in my household. So there is always Nutella in my pantry. My kids always have the opportunity to have Nutella as a spread if, if they want to. Um, same for me. And I will go through phases where I might have my favourite is Nutella on toast with fresh sliced strawberries. I love that for breakfast. I might feel like that for a few days and then I'll go back to feeling like scrambled eggs. Unsurprising to me, but surprising to a lot of people, is that my kids don't actually ask for Nutella that often. Oh, you know, it might be, okay, do you want to have toast for breakfast or wheat bits? And, you know, my son, yep, toast, okay, what would you like on your toast? You can have Vegemite, you can have peanut butter, you can have Nutella, what would you like? And sometimes it's Nutella, often it's peanut butter, that's his favourite, sometimes it's Vegemite. But Nutella to them, is, it's just a food. It's, it's a food that they feel calm about and it's, it's really nothing special, um, which is the, the kind of relationship that I had to work really hard to, to have. Um, so that, you know, that's one specific kind of thing from my childhood that um, I, I see as, as an example of the own recovery work that I've gone through, but also an example of um, the, some of the differences in how I'm feeding my two children um, compared to how I was fed as a child. So interesting, isn't it? And I, I can imagine that a lot of people listening can think of the equivalent. Maybe it is the Nutella, maybe it is that cereal that you just mm -hmm. couldn't have in the house. Um, mm -hmm. And I definitely see that in my own kids. There are times, I think some of it is that scarcity thing that there's only so much mm -hmm. between the family so that you have to kind of fight for your bit yes. even though you don't necessarily want it all then. Exactly, yeah. There were times where I had a Nutella sandwich for morning tea and I didn't really want it. I just had it because I didn't want to miss out. Yeah, you didn't want your sister or brother to take, <laughs> to take their, 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 more than their fair share, yeah. yeah absolutely. Which is also <laughs> a firstborn thing as well, isn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me about then how you got from there to where you are now with the work that you do. Mm. Like I imagine, obviously, that's quite a long process, I'm guessing, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to that point. And I would, I w I'm interested to hear it and reflect on my own kind of journey on that space. But what's mm -hmm. the kind of general pathway that you went from that point where you couldn't have things in the house to where yeah. you now help people feel that sense of freedom around food? Yeah, so I actually went through all of that recovery work by myself without realizing that I was doing recovery work <laughs> um, because it was it was happening um, at the same time as I was broadening my my professional understanding 
So I did my bachelor's degree in nutrition um, and then I did my postgraduate diploma in dietetics. And, you know, back when I did dietetics, which was back in 2012, um, there there was still a, a really heavy emphasis on um, body weight and health and BMI um, and that there were healthy foods and unhealthy foods and, and there was a, a healthy way of eating and, and actually you know on reflection a lot of that um, unintentionally aligned very closely with diet culture and, and a lot of the same thinking there's quite a lot of overlap there um, <clears throat> and so I didn't really realized but as a new grad dietitian going out into the world and I went out into private practice um, I was essentially kind of repackaging dieting but it I didn't know that that's kind of what I was doing because well I've, I've been to university and I've taught been taught these things and and I'm not prescribing a diet I'm I'm just talking about healthy eating and and encouraging people to get to a healthy weight and um but the similarities between that work that I sort of was doing then and um you know the the types of thinking that would underpin someone who was dieting um you know fill a Venn diagram that almost be completely overlapping um, and it wasn't until I attended a, a workshop in 2014 that um, I kind of detoured off that that fairly traditional dietetic pathway so um, Fiona Willow and Fiona Sutherland who are two personal heroes of mine in, in my professional life, um, they were running a, a non-diet approach for dietitians workshop, which sounded interesting. So I went along and I, I felt afterwards how I felt the first time I finished watching The Matrix. Like that just mind-blowing, <laughs> kind of like, wow, this has just made me question everything <laughs> in, a, like, in a really good way. And the thing that I guess connected to me was that it, it perfectly explained what I was observing in my, in my work with my clients, which is that on paper, you know, we could, we could find all of these ways to create this, this magical um, calorie deficit that was meant to lead to half a kilo to a kilo of weight loss a week and then we've reached this BMI point this week and, and it all sounded lovely on paper. The reality of that though was that it just, it didn't, again, in air quotes, it didn't yeah. work. Um, I'd have people where we'd be going through their eating and their movement and going, well, where are we going to cut back? Like there's nowhere to cut back to create this, this mythical calorie deficit or people where we would cut back, but they wouldn't be losing weight. And me with my perfectionist traits and my unrelenting standards and would sort of go, well, what am I doing wrong? Clearly this is supposed to work because this is what we learned at university. It's not working for my clients, so I must be doing something wrong. And then I, I did the non-diet approach workshop and it was like, oh, I'm, I, I am part of the problem. And it's not that, you know, I'm doing it wrong. It's that intentional weight loss 
doesn't work for 95% of the population. It's not just my clients. Yeah. Um, and that, that really set me off on my professional pathway to, to where I am now as a, as a specialist eating disorder dietitian. So staunchly non-diet, weight inclusive, um, you know, so that that was a you know almost um, almost ten years ago that I did that first workshop, but that workshop not only changed my my professional life, it changed my personal life too, because I was learning this new approach that I could take with my clients, and applying that approach to my own life at the same time. So I was like a. a, a you know, a guinea pig, like a, a test subject for what I was learning. I don't know if that would get ethics approval, that, that study. <laughs> <Any good one. laughs> yeah. the, um, the sample size is a little too small. <laughs> um, but it, it actually was, I guess, you know, that having that practical implementation of all of the theory helps solidify the, the theory um, and really I guess gave me insight into then the experiences of my clients you can be a great clinician without any lived experience of the the issues that you're supporting your clients with I know for me I am a better clinician because of my lived experience and it allows me to to I think to better empathize with my clients um, but I, I also think it, it sort of shows them you know God Claire Claire really gets this you know when I say I'm struggling with this or I'm having these thoughts Claire understands she's she's been there um, okay. you know, not that my sessions are spent talking about myself because they're they're not but I'm very vocal you know about my own recovery through my social media so anyone who is a client who follows me on my social media would then sort of know a bit more about my my personal experience um yeah of, of legalizing foods of stopping weighing myself stopping measuring my body um actually allowing myself to eat when I feel hungry rather than eating by the clock um all of those things all of the work that I've done with with clients is work that I've I've had to do for myself. Which is so interesting because I think it reflects a lot of my journey in that space as well. And I wonder if we were at the same uh, workshop with the Fiona's back in the day. I'm trying to work out which year I did my um, training. But it really changed the trajectory for me as mm. well, really thinking about, and I guess in the same way, like me as a, a dietitian me personally you know a lot of our we a lot of us were attracted to nutrition and dietetics for that sense of like the mm -hmm. way you know being able to control things being able to help yes. people definitely but also like this quite prescriptive do this and this will happen kind of outcome um yes, yes. and yeah. to see it to run you know to work with clients and for it to not work as a formula is, I mean, it's obvious now because it's, you think like, well, people are real, living real messy lives that don't 
you know, account for every individual and, you know, all of these things that perhaps at the time as quite young, naive people, we just didn't necessarily know. And I find Mm -hmm. it very interesting because that was probably um, a few years before I had my first daughter and we have um, our oldest are the same age. Um, And so I Mm -hmm. wonder if part of that, I think for me has really reinforced the learning that I've done is because I've been very conscious about what types of messages do I want my children mm. to receive and how do I raise them in a way that is different um, mm-hmm. and actually tries to protect them from some of these things but also set them up with the life skills to kind of get to that point. Um, and I wonder if that's a similar experience <clears throat> for you um, yeah, as yeah, a parent. Yeah, I, I guess I, you know, I think about the the lovely adult clients that I see in my practice, um, but also you know my child and and adolescent clients. But I think about my adult clients and kind of where where they are and the the similarities in their experiences with food and their body growing up and there are there are consistent experiences there um that um you know you sort of go well yeah this this is a common a common thing that um most of my clients experience this or most of them were told you have to eat your veggies if you want to have dessert or you um you know your your family's worked hard to put food on the table you can't waste anything you have to finish your plate or you know lots of those things that many of us growing up you know might have have thought well that was perfectly normal i have a, a a different kind of take on that in seeing how it it partly kind of shape someone's disordered relationship with food as an adult now I'm I'm in no way saying that every child who was told they had to finish their veggies to get dessert is going to grow up to have disordered eating <laughs> not, like not at all just that they're you know when you can sort of look back like retrospectively um, of those people that that do present with challenges there are commonalities so I see that that in my practice and and those are things that feel really important in terms of the the relationship that I want my kids to have with with food also drawing on on my own experiences as well um with with food you know as a child how would you describe what you would like their relationship with food to be like in, in one word would be trusting so I, I want them to be able to trust their body to tell them what food it, it needs or wants, how much, you know, when it's had enough, um, when it needs food, just like they learn to trust you know, their body to tell them when it needs to go to the toilet or when they're cold. Um, I, I want there to be that trust because we we are born intuitive eaters. If we you know think back to when my my babies were um, breastfeeding before they started solids, 
they had no concept of what the time was or when they last had a feed or how many mils their last feed was or their kilojoule requirements for the day or they had absolutely no understanding of that yet they are perfectly able to communicate their needs for, for breast milk in a way that allows them to get everything that, that their little body needs. You know, so if if you feed your baby when, when it needs feeding and you let it feed for as, as long as it needs and that sort of approach, your baby can magically get enough to eat without knowing all of the things. So if babies are born with bodies that can do that, then it means that adults have bodies that have the potential to do that as well. You've got to think about one, can I interrupt you for one second? Yeah, of course. You've got to think about like the opposite of that. Like a lot of the people that are coming to you, what is a word that describes their relationship with food, do you think commonly in your practice? Mm. Chaotic is a word that that springs to mind. Distrustful. There's a sense of control, like having to control food, control your body. Yes. Yes, definitely. So there's this thinking that unless they are in control of their food, unless they they clamp down and, and they put these kind of restrictions in place, then they're going to overeat and they're going to overeat to the point that it leads to weight gain. So this this all, you know, so often ends up coming back to a fear of, Um, gaining weight or a fear of not losing weight so there's there isn't the trust in their body to communicate its needs um, when it comes to appetite and and yeah there there isn't that trust because that that kind of mind-body connection has become disrupted through years of dieting if we didn't have that this that disruption then that connection would be wonderfully intact and it existed before prior to the disruption from diet culture we can reconnect so intuitive eating and and becoming an intuitive eater isn't actually about learning something new it's more about unlearning and then building up that trust again wow it makes such sense, doesn't it? And it sounds so different, like having a trusting relationship with food versus having a chaotic and controlling mm. relationship with food. Like one mm. of them makes you just kind of like sigh of relief and the other one, like just you can feel the tenseness and the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all of the challenges that come with it. Yeah, so interesting. Um, I feel like I've said that about 45 times in this episode <laughs> already. And we're dealing with it on a daily basis, which doesn't lose any interest, does it? And it's so freeing for people. What about for you guys as a family? Like Mm -hmm. what what works for your kids? What does a typical kind of meal look like for your children in your household? Yeah, sure. So um, we uh, breakfast at at the moment, um, uh, both my kids their parents both work, um, both kids go to school, they go to before school care and after school care. So in the morning, whether it's um, me getting them ready or whether they are um, with their dad 
um, getting them ready. Um, mornings are a bit hectic because there's usually, you know, I'm trying to get myself dressed and ready for work, pack lunch boxes, make sure we've got the library books that need returning or not forgetting this thing, get them dressed, get them fed. And so breakfast isn't a everyone sits down and has breakfast together event. Um, It certainly was when um, I wasn't working and when the kids were younger. Now it actually works better to be a little more flexible. And I think of our mornings as more like a morning kind of rhythm than Uh having to have a routine for the mornings. And that allows us to sort of roll with things a little more easily than um, having a, a kind of a uh, an inflexibility that doesn't account for things being a little different on different days. Um, sometimes my daughter wakes up and she's in a really chirpy mood and she wants to get herself dressed and she wants to get her own cereal and pour the milk. And that's fine. I can let her do that. You know, she's six. Um, other mornings she doesn't want to get out of bed and she's feeling a little grumpy um, and then you know I might have to help her get dressed and she might want to um, watch tv and, and we in our house um, for, for the mornings we sort of talk about watching tv can sometimes make it hard to listen to your tummy so we choose not to put the tv on until the, the kids have gotten dressed for school and they've they've had enough food for their tummy to feel happy. Yeah. Um, so there's not a um, there's not a requirement in terms of how much food they they have to eat. We you know the how much is entirely up to them. The if and the how much is up to them. But we we offer breakfast and give them the opportunity to eat enough of the breakfast that they need as well as get dressed before we then put the TV on just because um, yeah TV can for some people be a bit distracting um, which can be useful in some situations but not in the situation that we're talking about so breakfast is yeah a little little more flexible Um, I love though that that is uh, I think lots of people like to hear that it doesn't have to be perfect ever I mean Mm. eating in general but that family meals or sitting down together isn't something that is a a mandate that you have to do in a certain way when it doesn't work for you and I think that kind of nicely reflects some of the rigid beliefs we have about food and nutrition as well right that Mm -hmm. sure we can make some recommendations and like there are real benefits from family meals but mm-hmm. you don't have to do it all the time or at times that don't work for your family or that make life harder. It's never yeah. about having to do something. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and, you know, the more we're learning about um, how neurodivergent kiddos may have different requirements in terms of how a meal time is set up, um, you know, the more we're sort of really understanding that need to do what, works best for your family rather than what's presented as the ideal. Yeah. 
Um, when it comes to our evening meal, so um, usually uh, it's either myself picking them up from school or um, their dad will pick them up from school. They do have a snack at after school care, but they're often hungry for another snack. So we might offer them something um, when they get home. And then we do eat dinner together as a family. And dinner is an opportunity for us to catch up on the day. So we um, we play, uh, well, we call it a game, it's not really a game, but, you know, um, which is favourite thing. So uh, I think this probably got the name probably from Bluey. There probably was Bluey episode where they talk about their favourite thing and yeah. I think Bingo gets a bit upset because she thinks Bluey's laughing at her. Anyway, we're big, big Bluey fans in, in our house. Um, so favourite thing, we just sort of go around and each person says what their favourite thing was from the day, which is a, is a nice way for me to... Yeah, learn about their day, but, you know, I do it as well and, and their dad does it. Um, and it's a moment for me to think about my day and things that I'm grateful for and and reflect on some positive things, especially if I've had a maybe more challenging day. Um, and mealtimes, we, we kind of follow that um, parent provide, child decide rule of thumb. So we will offer food, um, some foods, some components of that we know that they will you know feel comfortable with that they would think of more as as a safe food and if they just want to eat that safe food and not eat some of the more challenging foods or, or the maybe foods that is their choice um my four-year-old at the moment is is going through a, a stage where he really only likes to eat uh toast and pasta and rice and cheese and milk and tomato sauce and mayonnaise. Oh, and fruit. Actually, yeah, fruit. So we we sort of build meals around, okay, well, you know, if we, we do some pasta dishes, we do some rice dishes. If it's a dish that has maybe a different grain component to it, we might offer him some toast to go with with the meal. Um, I'll usually provide some fruit or something as well that they can have at the meal time, um, offer them something to drink, uh, which could be some milk or some water. Um, sometimes they're offered orange juice to, to drink and we are big on letting the kids serve themselves. They're at an age where that feels um, appropriate and feels safe. Sometimes they need assistance, but mostly they're, they're pretty good at doing that themselves. Um, so they can pick what other different components they choose to eat and, and how much. Um, and we trust them to tell us when they have had enough. Um, we sometimes offer what we call second part of dinner. So we don't use the word dessert in our house. We talk about first part of dinner and then second part of dinner because we want ice cream or custard or sometimes it's cake or chocolate um, to be thought of as you know nothing special it's not putting food on a pedestal it's just another part of what is our overall meal um, and we happen to split it into two parts just because you know the ice cream would 
probably melt if they were having ice cream and their other foods all in, in one go. Um, so sometimes they have second part of dinner, sometimes they don't. Um, if they ask and it's not a night where they're offering second part of dinner, we'll just calmly say, no, we're not, not having second part of dinner tonight. We don't need to offer an explanation for them. Um, there's no schedule to that. So it's not like every Monday night they get second part of dinner. We keep it random. Um, but I would say on average in a week, they're, they're offered second part of dinner maybe three or four times. So, you know, roughly every second day, but it's not yeah, not in any sort of consistent schedule or not. Um, a big difference to how I was raised with, with my, um, in my family growing up is, yeah, they, they don't need to eat a certain amount of any particular component of first part of dinner in order to uh, be able to eat second part of dinner. So if my son chooses to just eat pasta with grated cheese and tomato sauce and not have the, the pasta sauce that we've made to go alongside it, if he chooses to just eat that, that's okay. He is still offered second part of dinner. If my daughter refuses to eat anything of first part of dinner, um, there is a backup option that is offered. Um, so they, the kids know that if there's nothing of first part of dinner that they want to eat, the other option is that they can have some wheat bix. Wheat bix is a pretty safe food in our house. Um, not particularly exciting for them, but it means that if they are, if they're hungry and they just generally don't feel like any of the food that we've offered, there is the option of having wheat bix. And How often do you think Weebix would be a, a, a fallback for you guys? Yeah, so, so Weebix is um, it's something that's offered at, you know, at, at breakfast time or if we're having like a night where we really can't be bothered cooking or sometimes we might just have what we call pick and scratch, which is just finding different bits and things. And some pick and scratch, I love that. <laughs> A picture like chickens, maybe? Yes, like chickens I've seen chickens. Through <laughs> yeah. the wheat mix with their little claws. <laughs> yeah. So wheat mix is sort of a, okay, if you don't want to have anything of what's on offer, you can have wheat mix or you can have nothing. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, second part of dinner and um, our kiddos um, go to bed uh, not that long after finishing dinner, second part of dinner, so they... They usually go off without needing a snack, but if it's a night where they're having trouble going to sleep and it is getting sort of a, a little way after when we've had some food last, then I will offer them a snack or something to just help their tummies feel feel comfortable. There's a lot of trust in what you talk about there. I think you use the word trust quite a few times as mm. well, which is you know reflective of what you were talking about with mm. that relationship. And it does take a lot of trust from us as the mm -hmm. caregiver, doesn't it, to then support yes. them to trust their bodies and trust mm -hmm. the process and trust what we're doing, um, yeah. it does, which can be yeah. very difficult if we have spent a lifetime distrusting food mm -hmm. or, or thinking mm -hmm. that it needs to be something mm -hmm. to control. And I guess mm -hmm. jumping ahead to the next section, I find that it's something that really starts to come up for people 
when you do start feeding your own children. And mm. I think it's definitely something that kind of starts for a lot of my Baby Mealtimes members and it kind of progresses. And often that's where I'm linking people to some of your work. But it really mm. does, having kids really does make you reflect on some of the things that you believe about food and bodies and some of the things that you maybe don't want to pass on mm. to your children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it, I find that there's a big part where that starts. Would you say that's true in the people that you see? Are there a lot of people realising that from kind of having to navigate some of this stuff? Definitely, definitely. I, look, I think that that could probably sum up the experience of a lot of us millennial parents is that we are kind of going through this process of reflecting on our own parenting whilst then figuring out how we want to parent our our little ones and that can bring up quite a quite a few things for for people realizing that yeah they they might have liked things to have been done differently or that they don't feel like they have a healthy relationship with food or their body and they're worried about whether they have the capacity currently to model a healthy relationship to their kids um, so a lot of the time um, it's it's not until parenthood comes along as sort of like this catalyst for people to to reflect and eating and, and um, body image is one of the main points of reflection so um, I do get a lot of parents um, come to me who talk about you know I, I don't want my my daughter to grow up hating her body like like I do or I don't want my son to feel ashamed for eating chocolate and and hide it in his room like I did yeah Um, so that you know that is such a a beautiful intention an intention to um break the cycle to to do things differently for your for your um children and and it's an opportunity then for you to do the work for yourself and and that's going to have positive benefits for you and for them how challenging is it for people to unlearn some of the stuff Mm. they have picked up and put into that box (laughs) over the years it it can be incredibly challenging um you know every every client that that i have the privilege of working with comes with their unique life challenges and experiences, personality traits, temperament, lifestyle, everything. Um, there are some common themes though. And one of the biggest challenges is that we still live in a, in a society that is inherently fat phobic. Um, we exist in a medical system that is still heavily weight biased. Um, you only have to look at the, the rhetoric around school lunch boxes, and um, you know, you and I were talking before about the canteen traffic light system and, and those sorts of things that exist in the environment that we are exposed to on a daily basis. So, as much progress we might sort of make progress in the, the relative safety of our of our therapy space. As soon as that client steps foot out the building, 
they are then going to be exposed to all this messaging that counteracts what they are doing in their therapy sessions. So part of this unlearning is actually about being able to resist the the pressure that's out there from diet culture but it is a constant pressure and resistance is tiring so people will talk about you know not being able to unsee what they now see and you know if I go back to the matrix it's sort of like you know they've taken the what was it the red pill or the blue pill can't remember whatever color pill it is and then they've unplugged from the matrix and now they can't they can't yeah, I know what they know. Um, yeah. Once you start seeing diet culture and you start seeing it for what it really is, it's everywhere. And it's almost like this, wow, it, it's so pervasive. And that can be a little disheartening at times. But yes. um, even for us. <laughs> even for us, exactly. Even as a clinician, I sometimes think, oh, my God, am I really, am I really helping in any way? Am I really making a difference? And diet um, culture, in a way, is quite like it's evolving constantly, trying to stay relevant mm-hmm. and fresh, right? It is that yeah. sheep in wolf's clothing. No, wolf in sheep's clothing. What's the what's the yeah. term? You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's constantly yeah. becoming, you know, oh, then it was healthy eating for a while, and you know, mm-hmm. then it's kind of becoming a little bit of this intolerance. You know, yeah. um, people yeah. thinking that actually it's healthier to do certain things, but that is yeah. actually diet culture in disguise yeah. for lots of people and not discounting yeah. true intolerances and allergies obviously yeah. Yeah. but a lot of those kind of things that we're sold or told are diet culture in disguise oh 100 um and even diets themselves like there are there are only three macronutrients that make up food fats protein and carbohydrates so there's a finite number of combinations of those three macronutrients in terms of high fat low carb or low fat medium carb so you know there's a there's a limited number of combinations and even Um, that they're becoming um disguised right like low carbohydrate all of this glucose goddess um, stuff yes. that's happening at the moment. We talked about that on the podcast last week, but that is just low carb diet and another yeah. jacket. Yep, absolutely. I mean, if you look back at it, it's it's almost like funny how glaringly yes. opposite it is that that diet culture is doing this. But every ten years or so, there's a new, bright, shiny, repackaged low carb diet. So, you know, we've, we've been through like keto and yeah. before keto, it was paleo and before paleo, we had Atkins and it's like, okay, well, we're, you know, we can predict almost when yeah. the next low carb offering will, will come because it does seem to cycle like every sort of 10 years or so. Um, and it's the same thing, you know, like there's nothing special diets, work again in air quotes they work all the same way so if if someone is thinking i just have to find the right diet that is a fool's errand i'm i'm afraid to say because they all work in the same way they all fail fail in the same way yeah true fail in the same way yeah oh big stuff i hope this has really given um some people some light bulb moments at home just a different rhetoric than what's kind of constantly 
given to us by you know the world that is saturated in diet culture mm, really mm, how can I actually want to ask you a couple of specific things um, about yeah. yourself first and then we can um, I can direct people to find you something I ask all of my podcast uh, guests at the end is what mm. is the weirdest thing you've ever eaten unrelated to dieting oh, maybe it is related oh. to dieting who knows <laughs> the weirdest thing I've ever eaten uh, see I I say weird and it, it, I know that for a lot of cultures it wouldn't be weird but um fried grasshoppers ah. one time at a um it was like a, a tapas restaurant in Highgate it's probably still there um and I was feeling particularly adventurous and tried some fried grasshoppers, um, which I don't think I'd do again, but I, you know, I'm impressed by my adventurousness at that point. I Crispy, yeah. Yes, crunchy and sort of sort of nutty. Um, but it, it, oh, this is gonna sound good. bits got stuck in my teeth and I really <laughs> I did not do well with that from a sensory point of view. I can just like feel a leg stuck in my oh, I know. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It, yeah, it was like a okay, good. Yeah, I did that. Woo me. But um no, not again. Thank you. <laughs> and finally, what's for dinner tonight in your household? Oh, well, um, dinner tonight in my household. I actually don't know because um it's not my night to cook tonight so, so whatever's on the table so yeah whatever the kids are having um uh yeah that that's not that's not for, for me to decide so um my uh my kids dad and I we are separated but we still live together we co-parent together yeah. um and he cooks Monday nights and Tuesday nights I cook Thursday night uh, sorry Wednesday night and Thursday night um Friday night is always movie night in our house where we get McDonald's we let the kids just sit on the mat and eat the McDonald's and we all watch a movie together as a family um and then Saturday night is you know usually just some leftovers or something and Sunday's pick and scratch so Sunday's yeah I don't actually know what's what's for dinner tonight it's a Ooh. surprise Surprise. I love it. Um, tell me if people would like to work with you or find out more about you, where can they find you? Sure. So I am on Instagram and Facebook. Um, if you search at Diet Free Me, D-I-E-T-F-R-E-E-M-E, um, and you can also go to dietfreeme.com.au. Um, I am based in, in Borogoon in Perth. In, in WA um, but due to the, the wonders of telehealth um, I'm fortunate enough to have um, several clients who live interstate and also um, a few clients that live in regional WA too um, so if you have an internet you know compatible tablet or phone or laptop um, then you and I can connect so yeah, you can jump onto my Instagram. I, I post a lot there about um, my recovery stuff, um, tips and helpful things for current clients and people out there who are working on their own diet-free journey and stuff to do with parenting non-diet kids. And then there's a whole lot of information about um, my practice and what services are available and things on the website. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. I feel like that was such an, a deep and interesting and also really insightful chat. Um, and That's I hope so it's been good listening for everybody else. Thank you for having me. Thank you. A huge thanks for tuning in and listening to my podcast. This is all brand new for me, so I'd love to hear your feedback. Give me a review or send me a DM. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And above all, I'd really love you to hit that subscribe button to keep listening. Thanks.